X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, the 13th of January, the 201st episode of The Local, our Portland podcast. Good day to subscribe, also to tell a couple of friends. We've said that before. I suspect we may say it again. We think it's worth having a daily local news podcast in this town. And with your help, we can keep doing that. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, January 13th, 1862, the largest flood in Oregon history swept through the West Coast. After weeks of relentless snow in 1861, a warm storm melted the high snowpack, resulting in a massive flood that washed from the Columbia River Valley all the way down to San Diego and across to Idaho. The flood dumped the equivalent of 10 feet of rainfall in Oregon and California over the next month, destroyed the Oregon towns of Lynn City and Shampooey, neither were ever rebuilt. Also, it damaged mills, storehouses, docks, businesses, and homes along the state's major rivers, which at the time were Oregon's main form of transportation. So much wheat and flour was lost that prices almost doubled. An article in the Oregon City Argus described the great flood like this, and I am quoting, The ceaseless roar of the stream made a fearful elemental music wildly different from the ordinary monotone of the falls the insatiate monster is still creeping up inch by inch, winding its swelling folds around the pillars and foundations of all the houses in its way, crushing and grinding them in the maw of destruction, and sweeping the broken fragments into a common vortex of ruin. All night, as on the night previous, people whose homes are being invaded hurried to places of security, glad to escape even with the sacrifice of all their goods. We can pine for the days of artful writing and journalism, I suppose. Today, back in the day, January 13, 1988, the Supreme Court ruled on Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer. The landmark case concerned public school newspapers and a student's right to free speech. Details went like this. Several students wrote and printed their own school newspaper in St. Louis County, Missouri. For one issue, students wrote two articles that the principal deemed inappropriate, one on divorce and another on teen pregnancy. So the principal withheld the articles for publication. The question was, did the principal's actions violate the First Amendment rights of the students? According to the Supreme Court, no. Five to three decisions, sort of a close vote, the Supreme Court concluded that schools have the right to refuse to sponsor speech that is, and I'm quoting, inconsistent with the shared values of a civilized social order. Or to say something different or in slightly another way, educators may censor student speech as long as their actions are reasonably related to educational concerns. Today, we have an interview with Serena Boston Ashby on the vaccine rollout. And first up, it is time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X-Ray. Representative Mike Neerman has been told to resign. The video footage released on Friday, the Republican state representative was shown intentionally letting protesters into the Capitol. The unmasked right-wing demonstrators had gathered outside the Capitol on December 21st, protesting the pandemic safety restrictions. The Capitol building was locked. They got inside when Representative Neerman of Independence, Oregon, left the door open for them. According to Tina Kotek, the House Speaker, Representative Neerman's actions endangered everyone in the building. Kotek said in a statement, I believe he should resign immediately because he has already breached the public trust or endangered our ability to safely conduct the people's business. Neerman has been stripped of his legislative committee assignments, facing a $2,000 fine for damages, and he agreed to forfeit his access badge for the building. The conservative lawmaker is also the subject of a criminal investigation, could face additional consequences, including expulsion. And now your daily dose of data. Yesterday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 1,203 new cases of the coronavirus. 
155 of these cases were in Washington County and 265 in Multnomah County. The OHA reported 54 new deaths and six fewer hospitalizations in Oregon. Currently, there are 403 hospitalized COVID-19 patients in the state. At least 7.5% of people with the coronavirus are healthcare workers. In other pandemic news, the first drive-through vaccination clinic in Oregon happened last weekend. OHSU partnered with SEIU to hold the drive-through clinic at the Oregon Convention Center. The clinic limited its treatment just to healthcare workers and first responders. The vaccine was administered through patients' rolled-down car windows. Then they were asked to wait in their cars for up to 30 minutes while they were monitored for signs of an allergic reaction. OHSU Chief Medical Officer Renee Edwards says that multiple mechanisms will be needed in order to vaccinate Oregonians. Quote, a drive-through structure like this one is one mechanism that could work for a number of people, but we also know we'll have to partner with stand-up clinics or large vaccination sites where people would be able to park or come via public transportation. Did y'all catch this, by the way? One of the impacts of the COVID pandemic is a pandemic of broken toes. Foot doctors are seeing more patients than ever. People are living at home not wearing shoes. Meanwhile, they're moving their furniture around for office spaces. They don't know everything is, so they keep stubbing their toe and breaking their feet. Careful with your feet out there. Careful with your little piggy toes. Environmental groups may file suit against Zenith Energy. Columbia Riverkeeper and Willamette Riverkeeper are threatening to file a lawsuit against a Portland oil terminal company. The groups say they have documented activities at the proposed construction site that are not permitted under the Clean Water Act. Namely, they say land clearing and grading activities that have taken place are not allowed without a construction stormwater permit. The two environmental groups notice says they intend to sue Zenith Energy if a stormwater permit isn't obtained within 60 days. The construction project would expand Zenith's capacity to unload crude oil from trains. This has been the subject of controversy in the past years since the city ordinance prohibiting the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure in Portland. However, Zenith has said its upgrades are focused on expanding the company's capacity to transport biofuel, which is different from fossil fuel. The company already applied for the needed stormwater permit in June, but the city has not yet granted that approval. Mayor Wheeler wants tougher penalties for protesters. After the Portland protests on New Year's Eve, the mayor said he wanted to see tougher penalties for people caught repeatedly vandalizing property or being violent. The New Year's Eve demonstration included some shattered windows and nonviolent use of fireworks by demonstrators. The nighttime protests in Portland have diminished in size and regularity, but are still met with forceful responses from police decked in riot gear. Over the past months, the police have regularly used tear gas, rubber bullets, pepper spray, and other less lethal munitions against largely nonviolent protesters. In an interview on OPB Monday, Mayor Wheeler expanded on his proposals for cracking down on protesters. Wheeler wants more allowance for police to record people protesting. He also wanted harsher punishments for protesters who have been charged multiple times. He said that protesters' tactics have, quote, evolved to a degree where we now find law enforcement tools that we have in place are dated. Powell's is saying no to no. Powell's will not sell Andy No's book in the store. No has become nationally known as an anti-leftist journalist and social media personality. His book, Unmasked, is scheduled for release this February. 
After outcry from critics this week, Powell's Books has decided not to sell that book in its physical store. The book will remain part of Powell's online catalog. The store will not promote the book. People gathered on Monday and Tuesday outside Powell's Burnside location to protest that book. Some critics accused the bookstore of propagating racism and right-wing ideology by carrying it. Noah's popularity has grown among the anti-Antifa conservative wing. He is known in Portland for frequently doxing lefty protesters. Powell's made a statement defending their commitment to free speech. In a tweet, the bookstore said, We carry a lot of books we find abhorrent, as well as those we treasure. We believe it is the work of bookselling to do so. And finally, some good news. Portland Street Response Training has begun. Portland Fire and Rescue began training its new non-police response team this week. The Street Response Initiative was championed by Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. It originated as a campaign by Street Roots and was inspired by Eugene's Cahoots program. In a press release, Hardesty said the execution of this project was an exciting moment for her. Quote, after years of working with the community to come up with a better solution to assist people who need help instead of handcuffs. The street response pilot team currently in training is expected to begin responding to calls in the Lentz neighborhood in mid-February. The five-person team includes a program manager, a firefighter paramedic, a mental health clinician, and two community health workers. Their month-long training will cover peer support, de-escalation, mental health first aid, and risk assessment. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Serena Boston-Ashby, political consultant, joins us to talk about centering racial justice in vaccination rollout. Here are Serena, DJ Ambush, and Morgan Jones. Hello, hello, hello. DJ Ambush here with Morgan Jones. Hello, hello. We're going to jump into our interview with Serena Boston-Ashby. The COVID-19 vaccine has arrived in Oregon, but how much do Oregonians trust it? And how can we ensure that the vaccine is distributed in a way that centers racial justice and equity? Here to help us answer those questions is Serena Boston-Ashby. She's a political consultant and the author of an article titled, What Racial Injustice Means for Vaccination Efforts in Oregon. Serena, thank you for joining us. Good morning. How are you both? Good. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So your article cites a poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation about race and trust in the new COVID-19 vaccines. What exactly did they find? Well, they found that, you know, over time, since the vaccine process had been made public to, you know, the world, that indeed that, you know, they were working on a viable vaccine, you know, over time, the general population in the United States became more receptive to accepting the vaccine, with the exception of a couple of distinct demographics, that being African-Americans and those of Hispanic background. They too became more receptive, but they became the least receptive overall when you look at the statistics. Mm. What's, What's also really interesting though is, you know, if you've read the news or, you know, been a member of either community since the pandemic hit America, you know, black people, Hispanic people, people of Latinx backgrounds are twice as likely to die from COVID. Mm, right. So that, you know, correlation between vaccine hesitancy yet susceptibility is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So for those of us outside, of, for those outside of uh, communities of color that may not understand why 
we are concerned about the vaccine. Would you like to speak on that? Yeah, I'd be glad to. No, America, really, I can't think of any place in the world, but specifically in the American medical complex, you know, we have a history of deep-rooted and very evident uh, medical racism. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, indigenous people, black people, you know, people of color, people who come from uh, vulnerable communities have been the victims of experiments and studies mm-hmm. in a non-consensual way from American scientists and physicians. You know, the piece that I published in the Oregon Way you know, regarding medical history and vaccine, medical racism and vaccine uh, hesitancy, you know, points to, um, you know, a few different examples of where, you know, black people have been exploited for medical gains. You look at Henrietta Lacks, for example, Mm -hmm. who cells went on to, you know, be the agency for all sorts of medical discoveries, for example, or hysterectomies and ice detention centers Mm -hmm. in Georgia. Um, you know, in addition, you know, it's been, you know, proven by statistics and, and different polls that, you know, persons from black, indigenous and uh, and people of color from those backgrounds uh, tend to not go to the phys- their physicians or seek medical treatment because of fear, fear of racism um, and things like that. I mean, there's lots of statistics, right? Some doctors feel that, you know, people from those backgrounds have higher pain tolerance, so they mm. don't give them pain treatments or don't treat them with empathy and care. There's all sorts of ways that you can look at as to how that might roll up to people being hesitant around a vaccine. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you said that as, as succinctly as I would have liked to. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'll never be able to, right. but yes. <laughs> so uh, what, are, <laughs> what are some of the ways that the OHA can address the specific cern- concerns of uh, BIPOC Oregonians? I know yesterday uh, or, or this week, you know, it was announced by Governor Brown that she's charged the OHA for making sure that, you know, 12,000, you know, Oregonians are getting vaccinated per week. And that is a means to keep us on what was a projected vaccination schedule, you know, per demographic, per age group, you know, moving towards spring of this year. That's a really tall order. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're at the high known vaccinations, you know, starting with medical personnel first. But, you know, even if the OHA had all of their logistics together, there's going to be some tension and some slowdown if they're not adequately connecting to communities, specifically all different communities across the state. I would definitely point to African Americans. I point to those from Latinx background, persons whose uh, primary language is not English, people in rural parts of Oregon where COVID is extremely high right now, yet there's no primary medical care infrastructure. The OHA may have all the supplies that they need, and they may end up having all of the medical personnel that, uh, uh, you know, they're ready to deliver vaccines. But if they cannot connect with communities in in a very specific and appropriate way, they're not going to be able to reach uh, vaccination goals that Oregon needs to move past the pandemic. One of the great things about Oregon is that, you know, despite our own history of racism, you know, despite... um, you know, the fact that, you know, we have very high health inequities uh, across the board for, you know, people of color, people who live in rural parts of Oregon, mm-hmm. is that we are still very creative. You know, we um, validated community health workers, traditional health workers, peer support specialists, as being paid medical staff 
in Oregon. What mm. that means is that depending on, you know, the medical clinic, depending on insurance, these are persons who are allowed to get paid to go out and be a part of the medical system. So community health workers, um, that's a, a license that you can get um, by the state of Oregon through training in a certain amount of hours um, where you are from the community, speak the language of the community, have the trust of community, and are able to engage in all kinds of interpersonal ways to support people in their medical care and their health. So that means that because you are a member of that community, people may feel comfortable letting you into their home. This mm-hmm. is obviously not, you know, without public health restriction, or you may speak that person's language. You can help them fill out insurance forms. You know, we had a, a you know, former Oregon governor, John Kitzhopper, who was really a, a very prominent thought leader in Oregon's history in terms of health care, always cites the example of the air conditioner and the emergency room. You know, an, an aging elderly person keeps going to the emergency room over and over again because of asthma, he can't breathe, things like that. Mm. Or, Someone's trying to—they're trying to stifle getting this information out. This is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> There's hate going on. <laughs> other uh, to follow up on that, are there any other changes that you would like to see at the state level? Oh my goodness! If you had, you know, running off your wish list. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. You know, my family moved to Oregon when I was nine from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So although I wasn't born here, I do consider Oregon home in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not without our imperfections, but I think Oregon is a great state. And I actually think that, you know, we have state government that, is, that does have a vested interest in the public. And I will tell you, having lived in other places and lived in other countries, that's not status quo at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're on the, the morning of, um, I'll speak for myself as a Democrat and the person who went to Spelman College and lived in Atlanta for a long time. George hey. had a really critical victory last night, right. you know, Big time. Um, prominently centering the, the work in the hands of black women and people of color. Um, 
and that did not come easy. So I, I do know what it's like to live in a state where you have to, where, you know, civic engagement, public interest does not guarantee. People all across this country are organizing effectively. Mm. You know, in Oregon, you know, one thing I would like to see the state continue to do is prioritize in terms of funding and public policy the way that they uh, connect with communities. Mm. And, you know, we have to spend money to connect with communities that need the most care. Yeah. And the way that we can do that is recognizing that the solutions are within the community and we cannot come from the top down. Right. Um, you know, the way that we do our statistical data to find out how people are doing, you know, we'll have to do a lot more, you know, um, telehealth, uh, a lot more as, po- as, as much as possible sort of person-to-person uh, health data collection. You know, educating people, you know, in their localities about, you know, uh, you know, public health and disease mitigation and control. But we also have to ask people in Oregon, what do you really need to lead healthy lives? What I'd like to see the state do is adopt some methods that other public health departments across Oregon, particularly Multnomah County, have used, which is to allow people to determine what their health needs are and actually put that on the ledger as being real public health markers, Mm. job security, food security, uh, freedom of worry from racism, freedom of worry from xenophobia, public transportation modalities that work for people that is not light rail. Right. These are things that people are like, those sound like very arbitrary things. That doesn't sound like diabetes. That doesn't sound like high blood pressure. That doesn't sound like getting your 1,000 or should I say 10,000 or whatever steps in every day. What I would like to see Oregon do is adopt, you know, allowing people to tell us what their health needs are and then working through that way. Also, just having nothing to do with what people would think would be more creative things. I'd like to see some standardized things in Oregon happen that have eluded us forever. We have a broken revenue and tax system in Oregon that does not allow us to pay our bills effectively. Mm. We don't have money in Oregon. Right. (laughs) We have of the lowest business tax in America, yet of the highest income taxes in America. Mm. We fund our education through property taxes. No matter, you know, the zip code, the county, even of the most prominent and wealthy zip codes and property areas, that we're still not succeeding all of our schools. Yeah. We don't know and still don't know always, every biennium, how we're gonna pay for human and health services. Our general fund lacks all that we need to be an innovative and safe and healthy state. So, I mean, for me, it always does come down to, yes, I want to make sure that people's voices are heard. We need to make sure that we're putting public policy in the hands of people, but we need to figure out how to pay for that. Yeah. So, you know, Oregon, we are fortunate that we have good leadership, that we were able to get the first set of vaccines. Um, But, you know, the pandemic really rattled us because all those restrictions that we went under in a necessary way did freeze commerce. And in Oregon, that put us in a pretty bad predicament because we were already having difficulty paying our bills as a state. When your economy slows down for something like an unexpected pandemic, right, that means that you're projecting out all sorts of things that 
are way beyond an economic recession. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the state's inability to function when it was already hamstrung by lack of revenue in the first place. So, I mean, that's a long-winded answer, but, you know, I think of things that keep me up at night. It's, you know, wondering what is my income going towards? And I'm higher income than most. But, you know, I'm a parent that has two small children, you know, trying to figure out how to take care of them every day and then wondering what the future is going to bring for them. You know, I worry in Oregon that we don't have the revenue to address emergency solutions and then just status quo solutions. Mm. So that's, that's, those are, you know, money and better taxation or better revenue solutions, which I think is a more adequate way to, to discuss it. That's at the top of my wish list. Thank you. Thank you. I want that all on a T-shirt. I just wrap it all the way around. Yeah, like if <laughs> if we if we really keep in mind that we are operating as a state from behind anyway, and then right. add in something so catastrophic that how do you just recover? You yeah. know, you don't right. just get to keep moving because you need to. You need right. the revenue. Yeah, right. Wow. You need money. You need, you need money. money. <laughs> Give us the money. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Serena. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I come back anytime. I appreciate you both. Oh, All thank right. you so much. We're this gonna, was so informative. We're gonna hold you to it. All right, no, gladly. <laughs> Take care and happy new year again. Happy, happy new, new year. year. All right. And ha- and happy wind day. Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks to Serena for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.